0: You may be seated. We as the Lord's people have a lot of privileges, one of them being the Lord's Day, that he has given us one day out of seven, made, a Sabbath day made for us, for us to spend with him. It's a privilege that we have this church to gather in, a beautiful church, thankfully it has air conditioning and heating whenever we need it. But it's also a privilege in each Lord's day that you and I as God's people get to take our copy of God's word and turn to the passage for that morning and for that week. And so in the spirit of that privilege, let's take now our copy of God's word and turn to Acts chapter 9, verses 22 through 25. Acts 9, 22 through 25. We find that Saul has been converted. The man who was once born bent on destroying the church has now been bent in the other direction. He's now bent on building up the church. A man who hated Jesus, who hated the gospel, who hated his followers, who was seeking to kill them has now gone to them to share the gospel. Is now a man so changed that he's living a life that seeks to love the Lord as God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to love his neighbor as himself. And since we are here as ARPs. I'm going to share with you my feeling. That I think Paul was probably the original ARP. Which meant he sought to daily glorify God. And enjoy him forever. And what we see here with Saul. As he's a man who's been changed so much. We would describe him as one who was on fire for the Lord. He would not shut up. About Jesus Christ. This is a changed man. And in our passage this morning, we find some reactions to this changed Saul, to this changed life, to this man who's been so changed that he is about literally on fire blazing for the Lord. And so we'll look at it together after we go and seek the Lord's blessing on our time together in his word. So pray with me, if you will. Lord, our prayer is simple this morning that through your gracious Spirit, you would open our hearts and open our minds, that we may hear your word and believe it, that we may receive and rest upon Christ as he's offered to us here in this part of your holy word. Your word is a blessed word. May we be a blessed people by our time in your word. We praise now in the name of the one who is the incarnate God, the Logos, the one whom all this word is about, Jesus Christ. Amen. Acts 9, beginning in verse 22 through verse 25, we will stand together now for the reading of God's word. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving... That Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And the grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. May may be seated. Have you ever knowingly made someone so mad at you that they wanted to kill you? That's a cheerful way to start a sermon, isn't it? But have you ever knowingly made someone so mad at you that you were sure that given the opportunity, they would probably kill you? Now, all of us haven't been children at some point in our lives. There's, there's probably a good chance that at some point you made an adult in your life so mad at you that it probably briefly crossed their mind, I could strangle this kid. But then, thankfully, they went on to think, but I probably shouldn't. If you're married, there's an even better chance that you have made your spouse so mad that the word murder crossed their minds. Let's take it a little bit further. Do you think you've ever made someone so mad at you that they actively pursued your death? We're not talking about a momentary, a heat of the moment sort of emotion that comes and goes. But you made them so mad, they thought about it. They even maybe began to formulate a plan. They had every intention on ending your life. Do you think you've ever made somebody that mad? Because that would take an immense amount of anger to push someone that far with such murderous intent. A few years ago, a book was published titled The Devil and Pew Seven. It was written by a daughter of a pastor. Her dad was called to a church, a Baptist church in eastern North Carolina in the late 60s. And for the most part, the church was welcoming of the pastor and his family, except for the man who sat every Sunday in the same pew, pew number seven. As his pastor went about the gospel ministry and ministered to the church and the community and the, and the ministry resonated within the church and within the community, the man in pew number seven grew increasingly more and more angry because as more and more people came to the church, he saw that his power and control of the church was diminishing. So he began to act out by doing things such as slashing the pastor's tires, going out in the community, spraying malicious lies and gossip about him, Making loud, rude noises during his sermon. Even trying to get the church to stop paying him. It all culminated on one evening. It was the Thursday before Easter. It was evening. The pastor and his family sat in the kitchen, around the kitchen table, started to have supper together. And a man walked in. A man hired by the man in pew number seven. This man walked into the kitchen saw the family, pulled out a revolver, shot the pastor several times, and shot his wife. The pastor survived, but his wife didn't. She crawled into the bedroom and died underneath their bed while she was trying to call 911. And the pastor was maimed physically, emotionally for the rest of his life. He only lived another seven or eight years before he died. And essentially left the little girl an orphan. And it all traced back to the man in pew number seven who ended up going to prison for his part in this. That's a murderous anger. But this is a murderous anger that stemmed from the gospel at work. This man was so angry at seeing Jesus Christ proclaim Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ glorified Jesus Christ at work that it drove him to murderous rage and intent. Just like we see here in our passage this morning with Saul. Luke tells us that there is murderous intent for Saul simply because of the gospel. Saul is a changed man. Saul loves Jesus because he knows Jesus first loved him. And Saul is going out in gospel ministry. He's engaged in it. He's participating in it. And it makes the Jews so mad they now want to kill him. And it's a reminder to us That the gospel is dangerous. Not that the gospel can be dangerous, but the gospel is dangerous. Just as it was for that pastor pastor in Eastern North Carolina, just as it was for Saul. As we said before, wherever there is the preaching and teaching of God's word, we can know for certain that Satan will be at work. And sometimes that work of Satan can lead to dangerous situations. Such as a man being hired to come in and shoot a pastor to shut him up about Jesus. For a group of pious Jews to gather together to plot to kill a man to shut him up from speaking about Jesus. As we said last Lord's Day, this this time of Saul's life in Damascus must have been a joyful one. He had been saved by Jesus. The resurrected Jesus had come for him, had apprehended him. He's now been saved. He's been accepted into the Christian community in Damascus. He's worshiping with other Christians. Every Lord Day. he's going, he's gathering with other Christians and they are <clears throat> excuse me me—they're singing the Psalms together. They're, they're in God's Word together. They're praying with and for each other. Ha- he's having Christian fellowship. They're doing uh, Bible studies together. This hasn't been one of the most joyous times of his life. Especially considering that he's doing this with the very same people that he previously had every intention of arresting, persecuting, and sending to prison where some of them would have certainly died. Saul is a changed man. And he is finding joy in this time. Jesus has saved him. He's with Jesus' people and he's doing the things of Jesus and it is joyous. As I said last week, I believe this is the beginning of the joy that he commands the Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Who better for God to get that command through than the very one who was so joyless to know the fullness of joy of the Lord that began here during his time in Damascus. As we go later on in Scripture to passages such as 2 Corinthians 11.32 and Galatians 1.18, we find that Saul, who will later be renamed Paul, because I keep on wanting to call him Paul, remind myself to call him Saul, his name hasn't been changed yet, but Saul tells us more about this time in Damascus. And, And what we find is that Luke really gives us a very brief, big picture of Saul's time, because as Saul explains to us later, his later testimony is that during this time in Damascus, He actually goes away to Arabia for three years. So we're not talking about a week or two or a month here, but at some point during his time in Damascus, he goes to Arabia for three years so that during that time, he can reflect on his call from Christ to preach the gospel. He goes away for three years to to, to wrap his brain around his call to preach the gospel. So let's think about this from, from Saul's perspective for a moment. As he tells us in Philippians, he was a Jew of the Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's as Jewish as you could possibly be. He's as humanly righteous as possible. He hates Jesus. He hates the church. He persecutes the church. And on his way to persecute the Christians in Damascus, he is confronted by the resurrected Jesus. And the resurrected Jesus calls him to now preach the very gospel that he has hated and to preach it to the very people he wanted dead. That's not, that's not a 180. That's, I mean, that's like a merry-go-round at, at top speed. His head must have been spinning. It must have taken some time for Saul to wrap his head around this. This isn't a sort of, a sort of call that Saul could go into without much thought or preparation. So he goes to Arabia. He spends time praying about his call. He takes out the Old Testament. He reads through it over and over again to see how he missed Jesus in it. I mean, imagine the scrolls had notes on the side that says, here's Jesus, here's Jesus, here's Jesus, here's Jesus. He's there praying, studying scripture, preparing for the ministry. And while he's there, he preaches to the Gentiles in the area. As he's learning, he wants to share it with others. He's studying the Bible, he's preaching, preparing for his ministry to both Jews and Gentiles alike. It's almost like he went to seminary for the Master of Divinity three-year program. So Saul's chronological story begins here in Damascus. At some point, he goes to Arabia for three years to study and prepare. He comes back to Damascus. And when he comes back to Damascus, he takes his ministry to the synagogues. That's what Luke, I think, is in part summarizing here where he says that Saul was increasing. It means he was increasing spiritually and in his ability to preach and teach Three years of study. Three years of preparation. Three years of prayer. He is getting better and better and better at the ministry. And this, this is where all the trouble begins for Saul. This little peaceful life he's having in Damascus and Arabia is now going to cease. And trouble will never relent for him until he's ultimately martyred for the gospel. So by the time we come to our passage here, we believe that Saul is now some three to four years being a believer into being a believer. He's had his time in Arabia. He's grown in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he's come back to Damascus. And again, as he tells us in Philippians, he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So what, what he's saying here is, ye don't get more Jewish than he does. His Jewish tree, his Jewish family tree, pristine. As Jewish as it could be, circumcised of the right tribe from the right people. Then he goes on to say, as to the law of Pharisee, which means he knew the law better than anybody else. Forwards, backwards, Hebrew, Greek, he knew it. He has studied some of the most studied Pharisees at the time. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. As to righteousness under law, he is blameless. And now that he's saved, he has this burning desire and passion to go to his kinsfolk, his kinspeople, the Jews, and to share with them the gospel. He knows what they are missing because he had been missing it. He knows where they are headed because he was headed the same direction. And Saul wanted nothing more than to get in front of his people and say, here is Jesus Christ. There's no better place for this ministry than a local synagogue. Saul comes back to Damascus. He goes to local, local synagogues. And he is so adept at understanding the religious Jewish mind. He knows how it works. And now, through his prayerful grasp on the gospel, he's now able to preach and teach to them in such a way that confounds the Jews there because he understands how they think, how they view the scriptures. He's able to take to them the gospel and present to them in such a way it confounds them, which means they, they have no answer to it. Because what we believe all Saul did is he set the details of Jesus' life. Here's his birth. Here's his life. Here's his teaching. Here's his suffering. Here's his crucifixion. Here's his resurrection. He set all the details that we find in the Gospels and put them next to the Old Testament messianic prophecies side by side in order to show them, to prove that Jesus is indeed the Christ. Brothers and sisters, here's what Isaiah says. Here's what we know about Jesus over here. Brothers and sisters, here's what Micah says. Here's what Malachi says. Here's what the Psalm says. Here's what Jesus said. Here's what all the Old Testament says. And here's who Jesus is. And so they're confounded. They have no answer to these teachings. The gospel has been presented to them, and they can't refute it. They have no answer against the good news of Jesus Christ. So they are confounded. But they're also confused. Now, let's think about it from their perspective. They knew Saul was coming. But who is the Saul they were expecting? They, they were probably expecting him to, to, to be the one who come and rid them of these troublesome followers of Jesus. Instead, he comes as, as a follower of Jesus. He preaches to him the gospel. He is faithful to preach in the good news of Jesus Christ he stands up in front of me and he says, Brothers and sisters, hear me out. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Then he goes on to say, Brothers and sisters, hear me out. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And he goes on to say, let me tell you about the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now imagine a synagogue, a Jewish synagogue on that morning. You're sitting there, you're a faithful Jew, and you hear Saul is coming, the chief persecutor of the church. He's going to help us get rid of all these troublesome, meddlesome, like Scooby Doo kids, right? Troublesome, meddlesome Christians in the, in the area. And you're sitting there, and this guy stands up. And he's not very impressive in physical stature. Maybe he looks a little dumpy. That somebody should have ironed his robes that morning, get him new sandals, at least trim his toenails, because they're looking kind of nasty. And he starts speaking. And he's not the most engaging public speaker. He kind of stumbles and stammers along the way. But then you listen. And he's sharing the gospel in such a way that you realize you have no answer against this. This Jesus is being proclaimed. This Jesus is being glorified. This Jesus is being confirmed. And you have no argument. Because this dumpy little dude is explaining it in such a way you can't argue against it. Can you imagine what it was like? Well, Luke tells us what it was like. Verse 22 and 23. He confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Every Sunday after church, there are groups of y'all who, who gather for a few moments of fellowship. Some here in the sanctuary, some around there on the sidewalk, some of you make it over to the parking lot. And I love to see it. It's wonderful to see it. It's the, the fellowship of the church is one of my favorite parts of the Lord's Day. And I'm trusting you're not plotting my death. Because some 2,000 years ago, in the synagogue, out in front of the synagogue, and in a lot next to the synagogue, were a bunch of churchgoers gathered together. But they're not talking about the weather. They're not catching up on the week. They're not asking how your mama's doing. They're not complimenting you on your new robe and sandals. The conversation is, what are we going to do about this Saul?" this is not the salt we were expecting. What are we going to do about them? And someone says, maybe we should kill them. And nobody laughs. But a few people go, huh, maybe we should. Maybe that's exactly what we should do. These religious Jews, pious men and women of church, Students of the Bible are getting together plotting to kill Saul. Why? Because of the gospel. Because Saul would have the audacity to come to their synagogues and to stand up and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Because Saul would be so bold to say to them, brothers and sisters, all you have sinned. And all of us fall short of glory of God. And the wages of our sin is death. But, hear me out, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jews first and also to the Greeks. That is what provokes the Jews to plot to kill Saul. And it goes from plan to action. They take turns and shifts to go to the city gates by day and by night to make sure that he doesn't sneak out. So uh, We're told later on in Scripture that even the governor of the city was involved in this plan. So understand, because of the gospel, from, from top downward, a lot of people wanted Saul dead simply because of the gospel. The plot is found out. Other Christians help him escape. They locate a house built in the city wall with the windows facing outward. And during the evening, they put Saul and a large basket. Lower him down, and He off, off he goes to Jerusalem. And all this is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is dangerous. But if we're honest with ourselves, we don't often think of the gospel in terms of, of danger, even murder. But think about what we're told about the gospel. Think of 1 Corinthians 1, 18, 19. For the word of the cross is folly idiotic. It's the highest stupidity. The words of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Second Corinthians chapter 2 For we are the aroma of Christ, of, of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. And to the other, a fragrance from life to life. It's not that the gospel may be dangerous. It's not that the gospel can be dangerous. The gospel is dangerous. Because what the gospel does is it confronts us about our true spiritual reality. It sets us in our proper place and it points us to a proper Savior. We know it's dangerous because we see the price that Jesus paid for the gospel. His very own life. We see the price that his, his disciples paid for the gospel. All but one, the apostle John, were killed for the gospel. We see the price his followers have paid for the gospel over the ages. We see the price being paid now in places such as China and North Korea and India and the Middle East. The gospel is dangerous. It's dangerous because it confronts you and me about our sinful nature. And it offers absolute confirmation that you need to change. And by its grace, it challenges us on the norms of the world around us. It calls us to faith in Christ. It convicts us of those sins we rather hold more dearly to us than Christ himself. And it calls us to a life of holiness and obedience to him. It is dangerous to worldly standards of comfort and ease. It is dangerous. Because it pulls back the veil of the reality of this world spiritually and materially. The gospel is dangerous and when we know the reality of the gospel we then have to each grapple the question of whether or not the gospel is worth it is it worth it what it means to us spiritually to die and to die more and more into our sins so we may live more and more into his righteousness is it worth it what it might mean to us physically in our lives Is it worth it, what it might mean to your comfort, to your ease, to your status? Is the gospel worth it for you? Is it worth it for you to believe in, to hold on to in faith, to live by, to have it set your priorities in life? Is the gospel worth it? The author and professor of faith, the one whom the gospel about Jesus Christ. And the, writer, and the writer of Hebrews tells us that when Jesus thought this through, when he considered it all, he considered it all worth the joy of the gospel. Men, women, children who have gone before us have thought it through and they considered it all worthy. So when we think of the good news of Jesus Christ, that through the person and work of Jesus, God fully accomplishes salvation for us. Rescues us from judgment for sin and to fellowship with Him. And restores creation in which we can enjoy our new life together with Him. May we find that worthy. May we find it worth all the cost that comes with it. No matter what may do to our status in society, how our classmates may treat us, how our teammates may treat us, however and whoever may treat us, may we consider it all (coughs) worthy because Saul did because Saul knew Jesus the author and perfecter of faith the one who the good news is about the one who looked at the price of the gospel his suffering his trials his tribulations his the cross his death and he considered it all worthy for you Saul Consider it worthy because Jesus considers you worthy. So may you and I always find the gospel worthy, no matter the cost, because Jesus paid the ultimate costs for you. Let's pray together.